1: monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms visit visible.com
2: rev up your thrills this summer at cedar point on the all-new top thrill Two. drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway and now for a limited time get more cedar point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just 49.99 get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick, and today we are going to be featuring a movie that I feel like is kind of a foundational text for my uh, adult appreciation of cinema. It is the 1987 sci-fi action satire RoboCop, directed by Paul Verhoeven. Uh, Rob, I'm, I'm so excited we're talking about RoboCop today. Did you come up, I, I think I know, you, you came up with this topic because you recently visited some of the original locations featured in the movie?
1: yeah I w- was on a family trip to Dallas over Thanksgiving break. Uh, we'd never been before we went there primarily to go to Meow Wolf and then to check out various uh, things in the city museums and you know restaurants and whatnot and i I'd, I'd honestly kind of forgotten about the Robocop connection until we were there driving around and then I, I look out the window and I see the Dallas city hall and and then I remember this is the RoboCop building, this is OCP headquarters, or at least the lower portion of it, they did a map painting on top of that uh, to to make it into this enormous skyscraper that reaches up to the heavens. And um, yeah, and and then was just uh, generally impressed by the the architecture in Dallas. Uh, And then once I got back, you know, started looking at RoboCop again and was reminded, like just how present Dallas is in the background, standing in
0: for futuristic Detroit. Right, so RoboCop is not actually set in Dallas. It's set in in fu- near future Detroit at the time the movie was made. But some of the architectural landmarks in Dallas really communicate the feeling uh, that they were going for in in the world of RoboCop. Yeah, and it's unmistakable, uh, even if you're not from
1: Dallas. Like there, there's a car chase earlier in early in the film where you see Reunion Tower in the background, which is a very identifiable structure. It's this concrete pillar. Um, you know, jutting up into the sky, and there's a sphere up there. Uh, well, it's not a perfect sphere, but, you know, observation and restaurant deck. And uh, my family actually went up there. But uh, mm. it's, it's pretty fun, has pretty, pretty cool history, like a lot of these buildings. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, it's there in the background. Anybody who knows anything about Dallas or had even seen the opening to the TV series Dallas would have been able to recognize that this is not Detroit, this is Dallas. But, you know, nice stand-in, lots of neat, futuristic-looking architecture.
0: So when when did you first see RoboCop?
1: I saw it, like, I think a lot of people of, of my generation saw it way too young. Uh, mm. I think it was playing at a friend's house or kind of like friends of the family at their house. And um, I ended up watching part of it. And, you know, there's plenty there to, to bring in a young mind, to captivate a young mind. You know, a robot fighting crime, firing all sorts of crazy guns. But then... You know, it is. It's kind of a notoriously violent film. It's it's got some really grotesque moments <laughs> in it, uh, which we'll discuss. It was not appropriate <laughs> uh, viewing at at this at, at whatever age I was, but you know, I I still loved it, grew to love it, and I think a lot of people have this experience. Um, someone I was talking to in the last couple of years said that their mom had rented this for them at the store when they were young they were just like oh they need a film robocop this looks fun they didn't like look at it closely enough to realize it was rated r uh-huh. uh, and then you know the violence uh, just washes over them and probably a lot of the commentary sort of went over their heads at that age too oh yeah yeah uh, all that ends up sticking with you probably is like the cool robot stuff and there is some really cool robot stuff in this film uh the violence and and probably the profanity
0: so I did a little digging to figure out when I first saw RoboCop, and I was able to peg it to uh, to a year based on a rather uh, a greasy uh, uh, marker. So I knew that, uh, and this is also a very RoboCop-sounding reason to be able to know when I saw this. So I first saw it right around the debut of the Wendy's menu item, the Baconator, which would place this event in the year 2007. So, you know, it was 2007. I was, I don't know how old I was. It was like 20 or so. Um, I was hanging out with some friends, and somehow it came up in conversation that, first of all, I had never seen RoboCop, and second, I had not yet had one of the new Baconators, <laughs> and they were like, okay, we've got to fix both. So we went to Wendy's, and then we watched this movie and uh sorry to sorry to the Wendy's fans out there the Baconator at least this one at this time was not good uh and I'm not trying to be a food snob I totally admit I can enjoy a greasy fast food sandwich but whatever I got that day was just not right it seemed like it had about eight slices of American cheese and like 30 strips of bacon on it just too much too much bacon and cheese maybe those things are different now I don't know but uh on the other hand RoboCop was amazing and this this memory, I think, sticks with me because the baconator I had that day came to seem like something that you would see an advertisement for in RoboCop. It's like an in-universe RoboCop food item. It's something Emil would be eating while he's like pointing a gun at you and asking if you you think you're smarter than a bullet.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of the uh, six thousand SUX of burgers. It sounds like.
0: It'll be hilarious if a Wendy's ad runs on this episode, by the way. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I w- was struck by how different this movie was than I had always assumed because I like I'd never seen Robocop, but I was aware of it as one of these 80s action movies. And I received it the way it had been, I think generally culturally metabolized, which was totally missing the point of it, uh, Shelving it alongside these other gory R-rated 80s action movies, maybe on the level of Commando starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. that that's how I thought of what Robocop was.
1: And I think it can leave that kind of impression in memory uh, if, if you, you're far removed from, especially in early viewing of the film. I mean, the violence is so violent that it, it kind of sticks with you. And uh, it, you might forget some of the other stuff. Like I was talking to my wife about this when I was about to, to rewatch it. She was very, very supporting of me watching RoboCop, but did not want to watch it. And uh-huh. I had to remind her, it's like, oh, no, there's a, there's a lot of satire in it. There's, there's more to it than just the violence, though the violence is there and it's sticking with you for a reason.
0: Yeah, I agree. And at the risk of sounding like a sucker, I think RoboCop has a quite genuine soul and humanity to it. And amid everything else it is, it is a hyper-violent action movie. That's true. It is a hair-raising depiction of a world uh, in the hands of amoral egomaniacs. It is also a sort of light uh, light sci-fi speculation about cybernetics. It is definitely a hilarious funhouse mirror to American culture. Amid all those things, it's about the struggle to keep hold of one's own humanity in a situation where there is enormous pressure from every direction trying to transform you into a soulless machine. So a lot of retrospective uh, appreciation of RoboCop mentions the, the satirical aspects of it. So I think you absolutely could look at RoboCop as a satirical vision of a dystopian near future from the time that it was made, which, you know, so the mid to late 1980s. Um, And I think one of the the main political thrusts of the commentary in the movie is, if you ever heard people say, I I wish the country could be run like a business, the situational premise of RoboCop is to say, okay, let's see what that would be like. Uh, So it depicts a kind of privatization nightmare where everything that used to be thought of as a public interest and a public good is sold off to corporations to be run for profit. And though that seems to be happening in pretty much all domains in the world uh, of the film, RoboCop especially focuses on the police department in the city of Detroit, which has been bought out by a corporation called Omni Consumer Products, or OCP. And OCP seems to be using it primarily in a couple of ways. You get the sense they're looking at it as a cost-cutting center. So maybe they're taking the money for the contract and then just cutting costs down to the bone without regard for how this affects people and then keeping the difference. Uh, but they're also using it as a playground to test out prototypes of new hardware that is eventually destined for military use and thus big Pentagon contracts. And the plot of Robo- RoboCop essentially Uh, arises as a conflict between two rival ocp executives you got dick jones and bob morton Mm -hmm. who are squabbling to get their respective lethal robot projects online at the police department so they can eventually step them up scale them up and, and secure defense dollars so, so, the things that are happening in the movie are happening because of what's going on at the corporate board level these These characters squabbling to get their own you know projects online and make bank off of that and meanwhile, the main good characters are essentially just street level cops who are unknown and unimportant to these power players, but whose fates are controlled thereby,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, they're just struggling, trying to do their job uh, also you know. Th- uh, there's talk of unionization. There, there are all these other additional um, uh, elements that are in play, uh, kind of at the street level. Uh, but OCP is is not at street level. They are they're they're halfway to heaven in their enormous skyscraper, uh, and uh, and you know, that's where that's where a lot of the plotting and a lot of and ultimately a lot of the action goes down.
0: That's right. So I I thought RoboCop was great when I first watched it. I've seen it several times over the years since then. I've long had an appreciation of it. Uh, But most recently, when I watched it just this week, I, I sort of think it's better than ever. And one thing that struck me on the most recent viewing is that, in a way, I think the sort of police and criminal justice themes are less essential to the spirit of the movie than a lot of people would think, and certainly than I once thought. So, like, the characters are cops, and some of the villains are career criminals, but... They could be in any line of work uh, of, of what used to be public service sector jobs, and uh, and the spirit of the movie would be similar, though I guess it would be a lot less high-octane if this was about like librarians whose branch is bought out by OCP and they want to <laughs> replace all the books with advertisements for the new 6,000 SUX. <laughs> but I think the deepest idea, like what's at the heart of this movie, is that it's about people— who are doing a job, whatever that job is, where their bosses do not see them as human beings. They are treated like inanimate tools or machines just to be used to their maximum value, exhausted and discarded. And this metaphor is literalized in the case of RoboCop himself, and his redemption is in rediscovering and reasserting that he is a human being, not just a mechanism to be used for profit by somebody else.
1: Yeah, yeah. His rediscovery of his humanity, that he is a human and not a product. Uh, Yeah, I I very much agree with just the uh, how good the movie is. Like, basically, RoboCop shouldn't be this good (laughs) as I rewatch it (laughs) in my my mid 40s here, Um, you know, because it's a film that, again, terrified and enthralled me when I was at a way too early age entertained me later on, you know, as a solid, you know, kind of dystopian action movie with some laughs thrown in, but yeah, it absolutely delivers satirically. Um, it delivers with the action and, you know, it, it delivers emotionally. Like when the film really gets into, uh, its, its own emotional depth, I, I felt like it, it, those, those moments still hit pretty hard or, I mean, yeah. actually hit harder than they ever had. Cause, uh, you know, I, for instance, uh, Murphy's son in the film is about the age of, of my own son, so it's, mm. it you know that resonated in a way that it just wasn't going to resonate with me when I was a kid. Um, and then, of course, all of this on top of the expected nostalgia rush of watching a film like this that, for better or worse, you grew up with.
0: Yeah, totally. So I I see all that, and at the same time, I accept RoboCop is is probably not for everybody. This is, to be yeah. clear. A, a hard, uh, R-rated, hyper-violent film. So you, you've got to be in the, I don't know, in the right headspace to accept it. But um, if if it is on a wavelength that is amenable to you, I think it is excellent.
1: All right, Joe, what's your uh, elevator pitch for RoboCop then?
0: Uh Omni Consumer Products has bought out the contract for Old Detroit and wants to replace its human police force with one of a selection of different gun-wielding robots. Beat cop Alex Murphy is killed on the job, and his body parts, including the remains of his damaged brain, are used as scaffolding for one of these projects, a cyborg called Robocop. Is he simply a tool now, controlled in full by his corporate masters, or is there still a human being inside who can act of his own free will?
1: All right, let's listen to that trailer audio. Old Detroit has a cancer.
2: The cancer is crime. We need a self-sufficient law enforcement robot. How long will it take? We can go to prototype within 90 days.
0: Where are you from? petro South? Welcome to hell.
2: All units, all
1: units, check your nine. Better alive, you're coming with
0: me.
2: Cyborg, you idiot. All hero. What are your prime directives? Protect the innocent. Let the woman go or there will be trouble. Uphold the law. You are under arrest. What is this shit?
0: Justice. Gets. An upgrade.
2: Looking for me? Your move, Kree.
0: RoboCop. Thank you for your cooperation. Good night.
1: All right. Well, if you want to go out and watch RoboCop before proceeding with the rest of the episode, uh, go for it. It's widely available as a physical or digital release. Uh, Joe, you watched it on the older Criterion Collection DVD, uh, which I understand is pretty awesome. I watched it on the Arrow Blu-ray, which I rented from Videodrome, uh, which I, I really loved. Both are loaded
0: with extras. I think i got to upgrade my disc because my old DVD now is playing in a rectangle inside my TV screen. (laughs) But but nevertheless, yeah, it was a great rewatch. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love...
1: All right. Let's get into the people involved in this production, starting at the top with uh, the director, Paul Verhoeven, uh, born 1938, a Dutch director, best known internationally for his string of major Hollywood genre films of the 80s and 90s. Uh, this, this is our first uh, Verhoeven film. Uh, he started out in Dutch cinema. And his uh, first full-length feature was the 1971 comedy Business is Business, followed by 73's Turkish Delight. That's his first collaboration with fellow Dutchman Rudger Hauer in his film debut. This was a, an erotic drama, and the film was a critical, critical success and received a Best Foreign Language Film nomination at the 1974 Oscars. He did three additional Dutch films with Hauer and a 1983 thriller called The Fourth Man with the uh, Jeroen Krabi, another Dutch actor of note uh, that he had frequently worked with that went on to international success. After this, he transitioned to Hollywood with the uh, Rudger Hauer-helmed 1985 medieval action-adventure film Flesh and Blood, or it's actually, uh, the title often looks like Flesh Plus Blood. Equals what? (laughs) Cinema, I guess. And uh, (laughs) then... Then comes RoboCop, which was a big enough hit, uh, though at the time criticized for its violence, certainly, uh, that he went on to direct Total Recall in 1990, Basic Instinct in 92, Showgirls in 95, Starship Troopers in 97, and Hollow Man in 2000, uh, which was uh, apparently an unsatisfying uh, film for uh, Verhoeven. I've seen some interviews where he's like, well, this was the first movie that I made that Looking at it, someone else could have made it. You know, he didn't feel like his his touch was there. So after this, he moves back to Dutch cinema with a string of pictures that lean more historical in theme, less sci fi and so forth. Uh, But I believe he is set to return to American cinema with a project called Young Sinner, which is currently in development.
0: Yeah, regarding his other big Hollywood movies, it's it's it is a weird string of films though you can totally see the as different as they are the creative threads that run through them and I would say one, the thing that they all have in common is excess he was a mm-hmm. filmmaker who was into depicting uh, depicting a kind of carnal excess in terms of of sex and violence but usually uh, to make a point of some kind whether he was successful or not in all of these endeavors that's questionable though I think I would single out starship Troopers in 97 as another movie that I think, uh, at the time, a lot of people really did not get it. Kind of, kind of like what happened with Robocop. A lot of people saw it as a kind of excessive, mindless, hyper-violent sci-fi action movie that, in retrospect, a lot of critics have looked back and said, this is actually a, a quite sharp satire and uh, and works much better than we originally realized.
1: Yeah, and I still need to go back and rewatch it because I watched it when I was when it first came out. I was just I just didn't pick up on all the satire. And and so the the fascist themes in there that are there intentionally that are being satirized um, just ended up sitting with me in a very weird way. I was like, I really don't like the humans in this. Um, yeah. <laughs> and of course, I, I don't think you're supposed to like the humans in it, at least uh, by the end of the film. So yeah, I need to revisit it uh, at some point. Now, Verhoeven was apparently—I've read—slow to accept the RoboCop project. Uh, apparently, because he didn't really understand the satire at first. And I think huh. his—it's it's been said that his wife likes, like, like, set him down. It was like, no, no, no. See, this is what it's. Uh, don't you see what it's doing here? And then he—he he was like, okay, yeah, I, I see now. And I wonder how much of that has to do with the excess, you know? Because it's like he seems like a, a filmmaker, you know, who who is about pushing of for the the excessive violence and or sexuality, more the violence in this in this film, but also pushing the satire, like making sure that everything's ramped up enough that you can't miss it, that um, (laughs) even at least subconsciously, it's going to needle your brain and make you realize something's not right here or something's being said. Uh, There's some additional way I'm supposed to interpret this.
0: Yeah, Uh, though like i said i mean i think especially in the case of starship troopers it seems like a lot of people did miss it at the time and mm-hmm. and only got it years later looking back
1: yeah now the writers on this we have uh, we have two writers there's edward newmyer uh, american screenwriter producer and director this was his first big hit um uh, alongside michael miner who I'll we'll get to in a second uh, he went on to work on starship troopers starship troopers 2 and starship troopers 3 which he directed uh, he also co-scripted Anacondas, The Hunt for the Blood Orchid, in 2004, um, and uh, he's gonna, he's actually the writer of the upcoming Young Sinner project that I uh,
0: referenced earlier. Uh, I have not seen the Starship Trooper sequels, but oh boy, that just sounds like, I don't know, reaching into a snake hole in the woods. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know if that... Uh, maybe, know. They're, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe they're, they're good. Great. Yeah. I haven't seen them.
1: Yeah. Now, uh, as for Michael Miner, also director and, and screenwriter of various projects, this was his first big hit as well, which he followed up with, the, with script work on 1989's Deadly Weapon, which he also directed. Mm-hmm. Lawnmower Man 2. <laughs> uh, and also Anaconda's The Hunt for the Blood Orchid. Uh, he also directed 1999's The Book of Stars, which um, looks like it got some good reviews. I think it's more of a drama. Uh, early in his career, he directed a number of music videos for the rock band y and T. don't think I know them. I was not familiar. It looks like some sort of a rock band or metal band, but I just okay. don't know. Him. Now, our star of this is, of course, Peter Weller, playing a, essentially a dual role: Alex Murphy and then the RoboCop that Murphy becomes, and then RoboCop attempts to reconnect with the Alex Murphy he once was. Uh, Weller was born in 1947, American actor and director whose acting work goes back to the early 70s, and he's he's still active today. We previously discussed him in
0: more depth in our episode on Panos Cosmatos, The Viewing. As we go on to discuss Weller in this role, uh, a point of comparison that I think is maybe worth making is uh, to the actors who play Batman, where there's a dual role, where there's like, you know, you have your face revealed in one sense as Bruce Wayne. But then also for part of the movie, you are just a mouth and chin.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, luckily, Peter Weller has a very handsome mouth and and chin, uh, very expressive uh, I think the other interesting thing that, that was surely intentional is that, especially at the time, he was a very um, gaunt actor, you know, a very thin mm-hmm. man, which, uh, you know, you need a skeleton to go at the in the middle of all of that gear that he ends up wearing in the RoboCop suit. Uh, so I think that that probably was a huge factor as well. You need somebody that can literally be the skeleton of this thing. Mm hmm. Now, as Murphy, I, I, you know, he's basically just a likable good cop that we don't really get to know all that much. We learn more about him through RoboCop as he tries to reconnect with his past. And this results in in various moments where RoboCop the cyborg is trying to connect with the remnants of his own humanity, you know, and his memories of his family. And I, th- I think Weller does a really great job in those moments. Like they uh, I, I uh, kind of uh, you know, weld some tears uh up in those moments myself and um yeah and and then also just as in terms of um you know the action scenes i think it's a, a very nice physical performance so there are certainly times where the robot movements look silly you know walking around as robocop and i think maybe they're supposed to but there are also some great flourishes that really bring this metallic hulk to life i think about the way that he positions his hands when he's firing that enormous pistol of his i don't know if if this is something that actually makes sense uh, uh, in, uh in 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 the, the use of a pistol
0: but it looks really good when RoboCop does it well there's a strange kind of ballet to the way that he moves mm-hmm. like he doesn't just raise his arm to to shoot his uh, RoboCop gun he if you know what I mean, Rob, there are some shots where he can almost kind of like he raises both arms like he raises his other arm as a kind of counterbalance. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. It does feel very mechanical. Like this like his upper torso is uh, a, the turret of a tank, you know? Yeah.
0: But also so I see. Yeah, it is mechanical and it almost looks like he's doing a counterweight or counterbalance. But it also kind of looks like a dance, like like yeah. ballet or something where the arms both go out.
1: Yeah, if they had not done those things, I, th- I think RoboCop, uh, the the character would have just been a lot more just visually unappealing. Uh, mm. So uh, I, w- I was noticing a lot of that in rewatching the film. Now, Weller came back to play RoboCop again in the sequel, RoboCop Two, but by RoboCop Three, he was played by a different actor, Robert John Burke, of um, best known probably for Thinner and Dust Devil. Um, I- I'm to understand that Weller was unavailable because he was filming Cronenberg's Naked Lunch at that
0: point. I mm. uh, you know I've never so RoboCop 2 is interesting. It I think it is quite good, but it's very different than the first RoboCop and uh has a, has a different kind of mindset. RoboCop 3 I've never seen, but it on paper seems like it could be hilarious, so I'm I kind of okay. want to get into it.
1: It has a great cast. Um and it's and it's interesting too in that by 3 they're like, you know, kids love robocop. <laughs> let's <laughs> yeah. maybe let's make one that's not rated R. Yeah. And so that's what they did. But yeah, I I've, I've never I've never seen it. But um but I it, would like to. I lo- love RoboCop too. Uh it really ups the ante especially on the stop motion violence.
0: Yeah. Um, so 3 has what I know about it is that it, I think it has rocket ninjas and it is no it, it, it its reputation is quite terrible.
1: Yeah. But it has Steven Root in it, so it's kind of mm. You've got to apply a Stephen Root rule. How bad could it be if Steven Root is in it? Uh, I should also note, note that Weller has returned to voice RoboCop in recent years. Uh, I believe they put the character into one of the Mortal Kombat games. And mm-hmm. there's a new RoboCop video game that I am not uh, technologically equipped to play. Uh, but uh, I've read some interesting things about it. It sounds like it does an interesting job of sort of drawing from all three films to create a, uh, like, like a fourth uh, narrative that you can play through. Hmm. I don't know that the satire is there. So if you've, if you've played uh, this new RoboCop game, uh, write in and tell us what you think. All right. Next actor of note is Nancy Allen, playing the cop and Lewis. Uh, born 1950, American actress who kicked off her film career in 1973's The Last Detail. Uh, she followed this up with supporting roles in a string of horror movies, including 76's Carrie, um, then a string of roles in, in films, uh, the films of Brian De Palma, 79's Home Movies, 1980's Dress to Kill, and 81's Blowout. After RoboCop, she appeared in both robo-sequels. Uh, she was in Poltergeist 3 in 88. She was in 1998's Out of Sight. Uh, she was in Children of the Corn 666, Isaac's Return in 1999. <laughs> and her last acting credit was in 2008. So I, I, it sounds like maybe she sort of uh, you know, quietly retired from uh, from cinema.
0: Is Children of the Corn 666 the 666th movie <laughs> in that series?
1: Uh, it, it might be. I feel like there are that many of them. I've attempted to to look. I, I don't think I've ever seen one. <laughs> I, I love Stephen King's original short story. It's very creepy. Um, but it's, it's hard to figure out where to even contemplate beginning with the Children of the Corn movies.
0: Why would it take Isaac that long to return? I don't know. I think maybe he was out for a movie or two. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So I really really love Nancy Allen as as Lewis in RoboCop. Maybe my all-time favorite buddy cop partner uh in a buddy cop movie. So the movie shows kind of multiple ways that the police characters react to the the pressures that they're under in this plot. Uh you know some of the the cops in the movie just become unthinking functionaries of OCP like they just keep their heads down, do what the boss says. They don't ask questions, even when they are essentially ordered to assassinate RoboCop later in the movie. Others are shown having emotional crises, like there's one guy who just always, in every scene, seems to be freaking out. Uh, Lewis is an interesting, like she, she keeps cool under pressure, and she thinks for herself, and she uses compassion. She's the one who's able to understand what's going on, to see that RoboCop is actually Murphy, when she, like, gets in his face and says it's you murphy yeah and uh to see that there's some part of him that is still human and to save his life when dick jones is trying to have him destroyed in the in the third act or or second or third i don't know later on in the movie and i think nancy allen does a great job with this role she's she's tough down to earth plays it smart human i I really like her in this role
1: oh yeah I, i she's really the The heart and soul of this movie in many ways in a very real sense and an intentional sense, you know, and she's and it's also great that she's not she's not written as a love interest. Yeah. You know, she's a capable action hero in her own right in an action movie, but her compassion is really her main strength. And that's uh, and and without her, if you take her character out of this, you don't get uh, any kind of a positive resolution for the characters in the setting.
0: I agree. I think a lesser movie would have tried to have some kind of romantic relationship between the two. And it just that that's not what this relationship is about. And I'm glad they didn't go that direction.
1: I watched a a featurette on the Arrow Blu-ray where they're interviewing her about this role. Uh, and Nancy Allen does point out, it's, it's very interesting how she ended up getting the, the part, you know, the, the sort of callback experience and so forth. But she said she showed up in Dallas and they were like, how about a shorter haircut? And because um, she had longer hair and she's like, OK, she gets goes out, gets her haircut. And then she's like, oh, my God. I got my haircut way too short. I got a terrible haircut for this movie. I don't think it looks terrible, but it is very short. Um, so it's, it's interesting to to think about that, uh, looking at the character. I, I think it ultimately works really well uh, for the character. But at the time, I think she was a little horrified. She was like, I think I've gone too far.
0: I think this was the first movie I saw Nancy Allen in. So I just think of this as her natural haircut. So when I see her in other stuff with longer hair, I'm like, oh, here she has long hair now.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into some of the corporate characters here. We'll also come back to a few cops. Uh this is a we've talked about this actor before, but Dan O'Herlihy plays the old man.
0: Oh boy, the villain from Halloween 3 shows up as a I don't know, is he a villain and yeah, he he's a sort of uh, unwitting villain in this movie. He you don't see him uh, he's not as direct of a schemer as some of the other corporate villains. He's more just kind of like sitting there presiding over all of the wickedness that goes on, mostly oblivious to it.
1: I, you know, going into this, and perhaps the character changes a bit in the sequels. I don't remember. I've probably seen RoboCop 2 more than I've seen any of them. Uh, so maybe he's more of a villain in 2. But in this one, I feel like he is essentially a God or perhaps Zeus. You know, he's... Uh, The corporate meeting rooms of OCP are in a place where skyscrapers touch the heavens. And his appearance at a meeting is spoken of in terms of a holy visitation. And we never hear his name. He's just the old man. It really does feel like he actually comes down for these meetings from heaven or from Mount Olympus, uh, carrying with him the aloofness and distance of a divine father who, who wants the best for his creations. He wants to create Delta City. Remember, he's the idea man. Uh, All this robot cop stuff is just in service to this grand dream that is going to make the world better, at least for some people. Um, He wants to fix his creation, but he doesn't really understand mortal existence all that well.
0: You're right. And I think the comparison to Zeus is apt because in some ways he is kind of a an arbiter of justice or a, a moral authority in some way, but he doesn't really seem to have much understanding of morality at all. It's like he mm-hmm. he's like an amoral arbiter of justice. Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting
1: role to, to look at. Again, thinking of, it's easy to, to go in and think about his role in Halloween 3, you know, where he is this evil corporate guy. And um, and we also talked about him in the last Starfighter episode we did. He plays, he plays a good guy in that. He's uh, covered in alien makeup.
0: Yeah. In this I, I guess I would say he is functionally a bad guy in terms of the effects of his behavior but he is doesn't have bad guy energy on screen. He's just sort of like an an oblivious god who's bumbling around destroying people without really realizing it.
1: Yeah, and ultimately he's not a power to be overcome by our heroes but to be appealed to. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll we'll talk about that when we talk about the climax but um uh, but yeah, um uh, Dan O'Herlahey Great actor of stage and screen. He lived 1919 through 2005. Oh, but then we, our true villain, or one of our true villains on the corporate uh, end of of things here is the character Dick Jones, played by Ronnie Cox.
0: Dick Jones is one of my all-time favorite movie villains. I love him. and I love all the corporate villains in this movie, but... Dick Jones is great. And Ronnie Cox in this role, he, Ronnie Cox was simply born to play business creeps in Paul Verhoeven films. Uh, one of my other favorites is his role as Cohagen, the villain who runs the Mm for-profit Mars colony in total recall. Uh, and uh, this is a spoiler for total recall. So if you don't want it spoiled, uh, close ears for a second, but in that movie, If you'll recall, he wants to prevent the use of an alien device that will make the atmosphere of Mars breathable because he wants to protect his racket selling oxygen to the Mars colonists. Yeah. Yeah. What a scoundrel,
1: Um, though. It's interesting uh, digging into it. And uh, this movie, you know, you you now think of, of Ronnie Cox, you think of characters like Dick Jones, but apparently he was playing somewhat against type. On this one, uh, he'd been mostly known for playing pleasant white collar type characters. Uh, he, he made his uh, screen debut in 19, the 1972 John Borman thriller Deliverance. Uh, we see him playing the guitar and he's actually playing the guitar in that dueling banjo scene because he's
0: also a singer songwriter. He is the character in Deliverance who has, like, the strongest moral compass. The others are more, are more like, ruthless and practical. And he's like, no, we've got to go to the authorities and explain what happened and admit what we did and all that. And, you know, Burt Reynolds has to argue with him and say, no, we got to cover it up. Mm-hmm. Which, again, yes, uh, I guess seems against type to me because I was uh, more familiar with him playing characters like Dick Jones. But, yeah, I guess you could look at it the other way around as well.
1: Yeah. Um, The same year, 72, he also pops up in The Mind Snatchers, a sci-fi film that has a cast that includes Christopher Walken, Joss Ackland, and Tom Aldridge. Uh, So some interesting names in there. I've never seen it. A fair amount of TV work followed, but he popped up in 79's The Onion Field, 82's The Beast Within, 84's Beverly Hills Cop, its sequel, and then he did RoboCop. Um, Subsequent credits include not only Total Recall, but the 1990 Captain America film, the TV series Cop Rock. Uh, Star Trek, The Next Generation. And I don't remember this, but
0: apparently has an uncredited role in Deep Blue Sea. Is he basically playing Dick Jones in that? Like he's a corporate uh, I would overlord? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's kind of like
1: post Robocop. That's one of the main reasons you're, you're thinking about casting him. I'm, like, I'm guessing. And, mm-hmm. you know, basically probably printed money there for a while.
0: You can imagine the Deep Blue Sea uh, is, is just in the RoboCop universe, like they're making smart sharks. That just seems like another thing OCP would do. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I don't think I said his birthday, but he was, bo- he was born in 1938, and uh, he's still out there. I think he still performs. As a musician, yeah. As a musician, and I think he may still be active as an actor. I, I don't recall offhand. Oh, but we have another corporate uh, character to, to talk about here, the character Bob Morton played by Miguel Ferrer who lived 1955 through 2017 American actor and son of Jose Ferrer and Rosemary Clooney which of course made him George Clooney's cousin. Hmm. George Clooney apparently showed up with him to a lot of the these auditions back in the day. They were Oh, they were living together, yeah.
0: <laughs> what if a young George Clooney had been in RoboCop? <laughs> Uh,
1: Ferrer had a he had a real knack for playing scoundrels. Uh, started off in early '80s television and some forgettable films. Pops up as a first officer in Star Trek III. After RoboCop, he appeared in 1989's Deep Star Six, one Ooh. of the many underwater horror films of '89. I think he undergoes a harrowing explosive decompression in that film. Oh man, that's probably right. Uh, he was in 1990s The Guardian, '92's Twin Peaks Fire Walk with Me, '94's The Stand, the miniseries. This man did three episodes of Tales from the Crypt. I think that's commendable. I'm not sure who else uh, did that many. Um, He was also in 96's Project ALF, 97's The Night Flyer, Mulan in uh, 1998. He did the voice of the main villain. He was in 2000's Traffic, and he pops up in Iron Man 3 in 2013. He did a lot of voice work late in his career and appeared in the 2017 Twin Peaks revival.
0: Miguel Ferrer is also great in this movie. Like I said, I love all the corporate villains. He's a perfect foil to Dick Jones. So Ronnie Cox is older, colder, more calculating. And uh, Miguel Ferrer's character, Bob Morton, is a young hotshot who thinks he's the next big thing. And uh, and they they play off of each other well, but they're like both so detestable.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like Morton comes off as more likable in some regards, but it's because he's less directly awful and also doesn't resort to direct murder, though is also is very culpable for human deaths. (laughs) So it's like they are both horrible, but they're different shades and degrees of the same awfulness. Uh, Yeah, Morton's this ambitious, coked up business bro who's definitely going to high five you in the men's room. But you know, at the end of the day, he's totally going to sign off on civilian or police deaths if it lets him advance up the corporate ladder. Yeah, These are two corporate characters, one more villainous than the other. Both, both I think you could think of as villains, but are, they're essentially both lawful evil to a certain degree. We also have to have a little chaotic evil in this, and that's where we have the character Clarence Boddicker, played by Kurtwood Smith.
0: Yeah, this raises another interesting theme of RoboCop, which is it depicts a world of an alliance between sort of big capital and big crime. Like the the criminal bosses and the corporate bosses essentially are working together against everybody else.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other antagonists in the film, though, are, are very much part of the corporate machine. You know, it's like they're. To, to large degrees, they can just be like, I'm just trying to climb up the, the corporate ladder here. I'm just doing what I have to do. I am I am part of this company. I'm part of OCP. But, yeah, uh, Clarence Boddicker is is very much a, all of the criminal world uh, and is just just evil, just do, doesn't seem to love anything in life. It's just full of hate and violence. Uh, even his his cronies are not safe. He does seem to genuinely
0: love crime like he loves his work.
1: Yeah. Yeah now Kurtwood Smith uh, born 1943 is an uh, American actor of stage screen and TV that may be best known to many for his role as the dad on that 70s show but this was his big breakout film role and this was another case where uh, according to some of the extras I was looking at you know it was very much against against type uh, this is not a guy who'd done a bunch of villain roles uh, they were thinking about other sort of established villainous actors like Michael Ironside but they ended up, Liking Kurtwood Smith, apparently, because um, uh, Verhoeven uh, liked how he kind of looked like uh, Heinrich Himmler um, Mm. in in the little glasses. He liked the idea of uh, this being like a more of a cerebral villain uh, to be the to to be the adversary of RoboCop, who obviously nobody's going to going to best RoboCop physically. No human is anyway, as we'll see. So you need somebody who's more scheming, someone who's more of a hyena.
0: I can see how this movie would have been, again, diminished if it had gone a different direction. If you had the standard boxy tough guy in the heavy role, uh, and not to dis Michael Ironside. I mean, I love Michael Ironside, mm-hmm. but the casting of a slightly nerdy looking but still imposing actor like Smith here uh, is really inspired for this role and it makes the character as memorable as he is instead of just another violent henchman. Uh, the Himmler image does come through. There seems to be something not just brutal, but kind of transcendentally evil about the Boddicker we got. And it's also there in his name. He's not like, you know, uh, uh, Biff Drago. He's Clarence Boddicker.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's a great performance. He's just so, so nasty, so sadistic. And um, like the scene where he's, he's eventually uh, apprehended by Robocop, roughed up and brought in, and he's like spitting, he spits blood onto the police desk. Uh, it just Just a a wonderful performance. He followed up RoboCop with roles in 1988's Rambo 3, Dead Poet Society in 89, Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, 92's Fortress, 93's Boxing Helena, and uh, 95's Under Siege 2 Dark Territory.
0: Plus lots more. Under Siege 2 Dark Territory. That's a movie with hacking in it. Yes. If you haven't seen it. It's about hacking.
1: All right, getting back into the cop characters a bit, uh, we have Robert Dukey in this playing Sergeant Reed, lived 1934 through 2008, uh, another mainstay of, of all three RoboCop movies. His acting credits go all the way back to the original Outer Limits in the 60s. He worked a lot in TV and film. He did one of the voices on the 1960s Harlem Globetrotters cartoon, and he had a memorable turn as the villain in the 1973 black exploitation film Coffee, uh, which starred Pam Greer. He acted in three Robert Altman movies, 75's Nashville, 76's Buffalo Bill and the Indians or Setting Bull's History Lesson, and 1993's Shortcuts.
0: In this, he plays the police sergeant who is putting up with impossible pressures imposed by, by OCP as they've come in and taken over.
1: So, yeah, it's a pretty standard role, but, uh, you yeah, know, notable actor. All right, getting back into the criminal world here, we have Ray Wise playing Leon Nash. Uh, this, is, this is one of the, the criminal henchmen to Boddicker. Um, Born 1947-wise, is probably best known for his role of Leland Palmer in Twin Peaks, but he also played the doomed Dr. Alex Holland in Wes Craven's Swamp Thing from 1982. Other credits include 82's Cat People, Jeepers Creepers 2 from 2003, X-Men First Class from 2011, and Wrong Cops from 2013. Uh, like a lot of these actors, he was apparently going in a somewhat different direction here, like he uh, a little bit against type uh, in the
0: casting of this movie. Yeah, he also has a kind of weird energy as a henchman, but it works.
1: Yeah. Oh, we also have to mention, we mentioned Emil already. This is uh, uh one of the other violent members of the gang. Uh has more of a anarchist vibe to him, you know, he's got the the punk haircut and so forth. Uh he is also uh, spoiler alert. He's the
0: guy who gets melted by toxic waste. <laughs> The extent to which RoboCop is a melt movie is non-zero. There There, is a melting <laughs> scene, and Emil is the poor soul who who melts.
1: Yeah. Played by uh, Paul McCrane, born 1961. He made a big splash. Uh, no, pun intended, because he does splash in this movie. Ugh. But he, he made a big splash in 1980s fame. And he was also a lot later a longtime cast member on ER. Uh, he doesn't melt in either of those films, but he did follow <laughs> up RoboCop with 1988's The Blob. So maybe he hadn't had quite enough melting yet at this point in his career. Um, I did see in some of the exes, they were like, "Oh, he was really down for all this makeup. He was down for this melt scene." So
0: <laughs> he both melts and splashes in the same role. Yeah, it, it's weird rewatching this film knowing
1: how horrible this character's fate is, and even as we're shown how horrible this character is, like he is not a nice guy, but his fate is so disgusting that you you can't help but feel a little bad for him and see him at least as some sort of a tragic character. You want
0: to be like, oh, dude, you're making all these terrible choices in life, and we know where they are leading you. Well, his friends are like Boddicker in the gang, and they don't, it, it just shows how unloyal they are to each other when the way they react to him. Like, he's melting, and he runs up on Ray Wise, and Ray Wise is just, he goes like, help me. And Ray <laughs> Wise is just like, don't touch me, man. Yeah now going
1: back into the corporate world in the midst of all of these villains and all it's easy to miss some how great some of these other small performances are yeah like you have this character donald johnson um who's this um kind of i guess like corporate ocp yes man and also just sort of a business goblin i don't know he's he's always there in these scenes he's never the the, the he's never the you know, the central point of the scene, but he's he's there. He's attending all these business meetings um, and he's he he makes every scene
0: better. Yeah, he smiles a lot. He just brings a real positive energy to these board meetings where robots murder his colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. And is largely unfazed by
1: it. He's like oh, business business has got to keep moving.
0: Looks like we hit a snag. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll, (laughs) we'll do better next time.
1: Yeah, yeah. This character is played by Felton Perry, born 1945. Um, He was also in 1973's Magnum Force. He did a lot of TV, played a lot of detectives, um, and was a cast member on the 1980s series, The Greatest American Hero.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Now, RoboCop has a lot of great special effects and one notably terrible, but in a lovable way, special effects. So I feel like we got to talk about the the effects a bit.
1: Yeah. And as as, as always, we can't mention everybody. Like this this especially is a, a film where you had a whole crew of very talented uh, artists in different fields, and we can't possibly cover them all. So we're just going to co- cover, I think, like three main names that should be mentioned. First, uh, we've already mentioned the melting <laughs> and the, the makeup involved there. Rob Bottin has special makeup effects credit on this. Born 1959, a true cinematic gore master. And and I think this is the first film we've looked at on Weird House that has directly involved him. His makeup credits include so many great things. Squirm Mm. from 76, the original Star Wars from 77, The Howling from 81, John Carpenter's The Thing from 82, Mm. Legend from 85, Total Recall from 1990. He also did creature designs on 1980s *Humanoids from the Deep*. That's a Fishman movie. 97's *Mimic* and 1998's *Deep Rising*.
0: His work on *The Thing* is especially iconic. Oh yeah,
1: I mean, this, this just a master of of practical makeup effects. You know, uh, these are things that uh, uh, you know I, you, you got to throw him into the same conversation with with names like *Screaming Mad George*. You know. Um, just an absolute master. Uh, He doesn't seem to have worked much in the 21st century at all, though, at least in terms of being credited on things. And I I have to realize, I don't know if we always stress this, but it's my understanding that sometimes effects people's names don't actually make it into the final credits on things. So Mm. I don't know, maybe he's working in in other capacities behind the scenes. But uh, according to, you know, like the databases, outside of uh, working on an episode of Game of Thrones, um, yeah, his his work in, in recent decades
0: has been sparse. Do we, do we know or just assume that uh, Bettine is largely responsible for the Emil melting scene? Uh, I didn't
1: double-check it. It's probably, there's so many extras uh, on okay. the, the Arrow release, I didn't get to watch them all. But I assume he had to be have played a pivotal role in that. It's just too disgusting looking.
0: Okay, but another main... Effect. To, so there are a lot of great special makeup effects in the movie. Also, there are interesting makeup effects clearly involved in realizing the uh, the unmasked Robocop effect when he takes his visor mm-hmm. off and you can see Peter Weller's face jutting out of this robot exoskeleton. I'm sure that uh, took a lot of effects work to make it uh, look as good as it does. But there is another big thing in the movie, which is the rival. Project to the RoboCop project, Ed 209, one of my favorite aspects of RoboCop, which is achieved largely with the help of stop-motion effects that look great and are some of the funniest special effects I I can think of seeing.
1: Yeah, this this is such a great creation. Um, Ed 209, sometimes referred to in the the credits as Ed 2000, so I guess maybe at some point in production they called him Ed 2000. I don't know. Um, Ed 209 is better. ED-209, if you will. Uh, but uh, Craig Hayes is credited as, as Ed's creator and designer uh, and also designer and constructor of the, the large prop for ED-209. So when we see ED-209 in the film, he's either standing there uh, as a physical, practical a uh, robot that's, I think, actually made out of out of wood and other uh, uh, materials, uh, you know, and and he doesn't move around much, like just basically the the top half rotates to point guns at you, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, and then the rest of the time, as we'll discuss, is a stop motion effect. Uh, but Hayes was involved in designing it. Uh, apparently, you know, looked to various uh, things, like looked at trains a little bit and, and other mechanical. Um, vehicles and, uh, and robots to sort of design it, but also looked at uh, at the Orca, uh, that the head of Ed 209 is apparently oh, partially based on the Orca.
0: I can see that.
1: Yeah. So Hayes did visual effects work on other notable films. He worked on Jurassic Park as part of Tippett Studio. He also worked on Hollow Man, Blade Two, and 2003's The Matrix Revolutions. Now, I mentioned Tippett Studio. Yes, Phil Tippett uh, is the uh, is credited as the creator of the ed 209 sequences, uh, more specifically the stop motion sequences. Uh, if you're not familiar with Phil Tippett born 1951, he is one of, if not the, uh, best known living masters of stop motion and monster special effects. Um, somehow this is our, our first Tippett film, I believe on weird house cinema. We've mentioned him in passing, uh, you know, connections uh, on other, on other films, but, uh, I don't think we've talked about him in depth before. Uh, you know, we, This is another situation where we can't list all the classics that he was involved in. But his creations have come to life in such films as uh, some of the Star Wars movies, 1986's Howard the Duck, ah. which has a, a, a notable stop-motion monster at the end, 1988's Willow, both RoboCop sequels. Jurassic Park in 93, Starship Troopers, and of course his his own project, which uh, was made over many years. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, finally released in 2021, Mad God. Really good stop motion in this film. And we'll come back to talk a, a little bit more about Ed 209 later on and just how incredible he looks. But uh, finally, the music here is by Basil Polidorus, who lived 1945 through 2006 American composer best known in film for his work with John Milius, who he met at USC studying filmmaking and composing. He also worked several times with Paul Verhoeven. Uh, he worked with Milius as early as 1970 on a student film. And then later on 78's Big Wednesday, 1982's Conan the Barbarian, of course. That, in my opinion, is is his his masterwork. Like that, that is such an incredible and, and just perfect score for that movie. Mm-hmm. But he also worked with Milius on Red Dawn from 84, Farewell to the King in 89, and Flight of the Intruder in 91. With Verhoeven, he worked with him for the first time on Flesh Plus Blood from 85, followed this up with Robocop and Starship Troopers in 97. Other scores of note include Rene Cardona Jr.'s uh, Tintorera from uh, 1974, the shark movie, or a shark movie, we should say, none the shark movie in any uh, in any respect also the michael crichton scripted extreme close-up in 73 the blue lagoon in 1980 cherry 2000 in 1988 and the 1989 miniseries lonesome dove hmm. so for this movie you know solid catchy and sweeping score um i, I think a highly effective score you know it, it has the, the right bombosity
0: for uh for robocop yeah, I love the RoboCop theme. I, I think it's perfect for the film, and it sonically evokes exactly the feeling of the world and the plot. Like, it sounds like a doomed attempt at heroism in a bleak world ruled by bad men. Yeah. All right, uh, you want to talk a bit about the plot?
1: Yeah, let's, let's dive right in.
0: Now, this is one of those where I think it does not make sense to do a full scene by scene recap of the movie, but rather uh, in this case, we're going to discuss a bit about the broad outline and some themes and highlights from the movie. One thing we've got to talk about is the uh, uh, are the the media segments in RoboCop RoboCop. Mm -hmm repeatedly breaks the action with news reports, commercials, and clips of TV shows from in-universe, as if we were characters in the world of RoboCop watching the same TV they do.
1: Yeah, and these are extended
0: sequences. I'd forgotten just
1: how long they are. Like, you're watching RoboCop world television for minutes on end, uh, including right at the top of the film, and it does a great job of Positioning you within the world of the movie, of course, giving you a little backdrop uh, for what's going on elsewhere in the world, what's going on in culture and media. Um, But at the same time, in some ways, counterbalancing the violence that we see on screen, but also driving home the satire and like keeping satire on your radar as you are interacting with the, the gritty details of the plot.
0: There's a way that like when you see the news reports in the media segments sort of just lightly gloss over what sound like actually horrific events that sort of makes you see the events of the violent events of the plot differently. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, is yeah, but a big part of what they do, especially at the beginning of the film, is uh, is just world setting, you know, establishing what what kind of world is this taking place in. And I would say the news segments from the world of RoboCop depict a kind of hyper Reaganite near future. So there is an idea that there's escalation of the Cold War, massive military buildup, a lot of focus on weapons technology, and a supply side free for all where everything is run by for profit corporations and cash is king. And the first thing we see in the movie after like a sweep over the city and the title is a news segment. And so uh, to, to set the scene of this world, it mentions for there's, there's, a, there's a segment about how the remaining enclave of the apartheid government in South Africa has unveiled their possession of a French-made neutron bomb and has announced their willingness to use it against the people uh, to protect white minority rule. There is another report uh, from the new, quote, Star Wars Orbiting Peace Platform. And this appears to be a play on the so called Star Wars Missile Defense Initiative. Uh, except in the movie, the, the, quote, Peace Platform seems to be just some kind of, like, general orbital weapon system. Uh, which they call a peace platform. And then in a later news segment in the movie, we find out that it, quote, accidentally fired a laser barrage at Santa Barbara, California, during a test, and that kills hundreds of people, including two former presidents who are not named. And then the anchors just say, the nation mourns for Santa Barbara, and then they move on to something else.
1: And, I mean, the, the, it's implied that that's Ronald Reagan. Yes. If we see Ronald Reagan's body. Uh, there on the ground. So I
0: mean, the, 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 the satire is at times pretty grim. But then it cuts straight from these, like, horrific reports to commercials. And the commercials are for things like, one is for the Family Heart Center, which is a clinic focusing on heart transplants with new mechanical artificial hearts. Uh, But the doctor in the commercial, at first, he's like, you know, oh, it's time for a heart transplant. Uh, And then he transitions into sounding like he's pitching a customer on jet skis. He's -hmm. like, the Series 7 Sports Heart by Jensen. Yamaha, you pick the heart. (laughs) Which I guess
1: also positions where we are in like the cybernetic world.
0: Yeah. Then there is an ad for a family board game called Nukem, a game that looks kind of like Battleship, except it's for four players. And it seems like the way you win the game is if you are the first player to use nuclear weapons. The tagline of the game is get them before they get you. Grim, Grim. Then there are ads for a car. This car has a big footprint in the movie. It is called the 6000 SUX. So that's kind of a <laughs> low-hanging fruit joke, but, yep. uh, you know, it, it, I I I wouldn't change it. Um, this is apparently the hottest new car in the world now. It is extremely ugly. It gets eight miles per gallon, but it's <laughs> new. It's huge. You've got to have one. The commercial makes the point that the car is bigger than Godzilla.
1: Yeah, we have this nice commercial that has the stop motion monster in it, like very much in the Harryhausen style, obviously created by Phil Tippett here, um, which is a nice nod to those movies that are uh, in in a very large way an inspiration for the creation of Ed 209.
0: But then also we see... T- the TV content, TV shows. Uh, the most popular TV show in the world of Robocop, which we see multiple times, involves a man with glasses and a mustache ogling women in bikinis and then turning directly to the camera to utter his beloved catchphrase I'd buy that for a dollar. Uh, so, according to an article that I turned up, though it's not mentioned in the movie, the uh, the name of this TV sitcom is "It's Not My Problem!" exclamation point. And it, it's interesting. So, the show is portrayed as uh, just uh, insipid trash, but multiple times we see characters watching this show, such as there, there's one moment where this sadistic murderer Emil is watching the show on a TV through a shop window, and I think he's like sitting in his car, watching it, uh, drinking a liquor bottle or something. He seems to find it marvelously entertaining, and then he ends up breaking the glass in the window so he can turn the TV up louder and laugh along with the laugh track. So something's interesting about the way robocop depicts this world of cruel sadistic men who kill without a thought and then in their downtime are sedated and entertained by mindless repetitive sitcoms that just seem to be looping the same scene and catchphrase over and over
1: yeah yeah that Anil scene especially is interesting you know because it, it they it intentionally took time to show you uh his enjoyment of this show that that yeah this 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 bottom-of-the-barrel uh, misogynistic comedy that seems to be everybody's favorite. And I guess it, it also, I'd buy that for a dollar. Like, it just, it also kind of uh, ties into the overall um, capitalist corporate world of RoboCop. Everything can be bought
0: for a dollar. Right. It, it's almost like a, a mantra delivering the hidden message that my, my trust and allegiance is cheap. Just give me the cash. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission? parking and all day drinks for one low price but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long save now at cedarpoint.com
0: today's episode is brought to you by technically speaking an intel podcast when you think about the future what kind of technology do you envision whatever the future holds artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all All right. Well, let's talk more about the setting here. Uh, Yeah. So the media segments are used to establish a lot about the broader world. The specific setting of the movie is the city of Detroit in Michigan, where it seems the situation is uh, that there's some overlap with reality that the city was a a thriving metropolis. But It has suffered a lot because uh, a lot of the industry that used to be based there has moved offshore or shuttered in some way. So the film is just full of abandoned, empty factory buildings that uh, continually visually communicate this theme of just like uh, the loss of former prosperity and so forth. Uh, So uh, huge portions of the city have been left out of work, impoverished and desperate. And the city is essentially on the brink of collapse. So the job of... Running the local police department has been outsourced to OCP, Omni Consumer Products. But OCP has set its sights higher than just running the police. Essentially, they have a plan to demolish the existing Detroit and replace it with a new, completely privately owned settlement called Delta City, where they will run everything. So, uh, in a way, you can see how it is in OCP's interest for things in Detroit to get as bad as they possibly can be so that they can buy up all the property cheap and privatize all the local government. Yeah, yeah. And but at the same time, they need a little bit of
1: muscle. And also they are, as we're told at one point, they basically are the military. Uh, so they're working on all of these uh, various military projects as well.
0: Right. And so amidst this backdrop, we, we see the OCP headquarters, which is this uh, strange looking building that has a kind of oh, inverted triangle architecture near the bottom, but then it just goes straight up from there. And so it, it's a very weird looking uh, skyscraper architecture, but it does seem on theme somehow because it's like all of this concrete that like comes down to a point near where it meets the ground. So it's the idea of like this corporation just like crushing the people on the ground.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, the bottom part of this is Dallas City Hall. But by creating this map painting of it rising the rest of the way up into the sky, uh, it's like it's stabbing into the earth, like it's a a sword come down from the heavens. And we eventually see multiple shots at different points in the film of people ascending or descending in elevators and some sort of, you know, vast atriums of this building. And these were also created with map paintings. And uh, in the extras on the Arrow Blu-ray, they mentioned that Forbidden Planet was one of the influences here in creating this kind of vast uh, interior space.
0: I never would have made that connection, but that's really good. Yeah. Well, anyway, OK, so here at OCP headquarters, we come in in this corporate board meeting, which is a, a great scene. We've got OCP vice president Dick Jones, played by Ronnie Cox. He is showing off his plan to move on to the next stage in their control of the Detroit police force. He wants to essentially replace the remaining human police force with a violent police robot called Ed 209. He brings Ed 209 out for a demonstration that turns horrific. Uh, Rob, I don't know if you want to describe this scene. It's, It's an iconic scene from the film, maybe the most remembered part of all of RoboCop.
1: Yeah, I mean, for starters, it has, we have to mention that, that Ed two oh nine, and if you don't know what Ed two oh nine looks like, do 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 yourself a favor and find an image search or 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 a, you know video clip because it does not look like a policeman. It looks like a weapons platform. Yeah, it is and that is, is what it is. Not humanoid in shape. Yeah, it's just a weapons platform that they're clearly eyeing for a larger military market. Uh, It was not created expressly with police work in mind. Uh, It is a frightening,
0: uh, bestial machine. So Dick Jones is setting up the demonstration. He gets one of the uh, one of his colleagues from the boardroom here to uh, to point a gun at Ed 209 for the demonstration. And there's a little detail. A lot of people notice that he hands a gun to this guy. He's like, all right, let's see if we can make him do his job. And so the other guy points the gun at Dick Jones and ed 209 does not react to this like of like people threatening each other. But then Dick Jones is like, no, no pointed at ed 209. so then when he, when he threatens the hardware, then ed 209 comes online and like points his turrets at him and says, you drop the weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. So the guy, he said, you know, uh, he is goaded on by Dick Jones. He says, better do as you're told. So the guy drops the weapon and then, uh, Ed 209 says, you now have 15 seconds to comply. (laughs) It clearly has not registered the loss of the weapon. So in a horrifically violent turn of events, the robot malfunctions and then ends up just liquefying this guy. It shoots him like hundreds of times.
1: Yeah. Just notoriously graphic scene. And some cuts of the film have the extended guification of this, this poor doomed individual. Uh, But uh, yeah. And, and it's a frantic affair. He's trying to, like, hide, you know, run to for cover and they're pushing him back in the way because no one else wants to get shot and you know, caught in the crossfire. And uh, yeah. And then finally, ugh, uh, just, uh, utter failure of the program
0: here. So the old man looks at Dick Jones and says, I'm very disappointed in you, Dick. And Dick Jones says, sure, it's only a glitch, <laughs> so yeah. he's, like completely unconcerned with you know, the the threat this would pose to people is just kind of like, yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. But this does seem like a pretty catastrophic failure to the old man and right there next to him waiting in the wings is bob morton played by miguel ferrer who steps in with his rival project he's like clearly ed 209 is not ready for prime time we've got something ready to go the robocop program and he tells the old man about it it's it's ready to go as plan b all they need is a donor and he thinks they should have one pretty soon what does that mean we're about to find out
1: yeah, uh, it's it may not be here, maybe it's a little later that we we learned that, uh, yeah, not only are they eyeing donors, but they are making sure that prime police candidates are being reassigned to dangerous zones yes. so that they're going to be more likely to encounter some sort of fatal injury that would deliver their body straight to the RoboCop program.
0: Yeah, they do, they do like a physical and they're like, OK, Peter Weller, he would be a good candidate to go in the RoboCop suit. So we're going to send him after Clarence Boddicker and deny him back up. Yeah. So here we meet our hero, Alex Murphy, again, Peter Weller. Uh, After OCP transfers him to a new Metro division, he gets paired with his new partner, Lewis. That's Nancy Allen. They get to know each other. They have some nice, friendly banter. But early on, maybe it's his first day at the new division. Not exactly clear. They respond to a bank robbery in progress, and it's Clarence Boddicker's gang. And Boddicker is just the nastiest, meanest criminal on Earth. Uh, While Murphy and Lewis are, uh, are chasing them, there's this one part where you see Boddicker... Just like the gang has no friendship or loyalty even to each other. One of their, one of the gang is injured during the shootout when they're in a chase and, um, Bodiker just like grabs him and goes can you fly bobby and throws him out of the van into the police car which Mm -hmm. uh, briefly delays them and eventually uh murphy and lewis pursue the gang all the way to an abandoned foundry and while attempting to make an arrest again no backup is available as usual murphy is caught and then brutally executed by the gang awful, horrifically violent scene. His body is recovered, taken to a hospital, but he can't be revived. He is dead.
1: Yeah, I think shotgun dismemberment is worth uh, uh, mentioning in terms of Murphy's death because, um, you know, because it's like it's that extreme, like like it's another example of the violence just ratcheted up to an unbelievable to a degree where it almost takes some of the punch out of it. Because it becomes an obvious Hollywood gore fest. I don't know. Everyone's mileage is going to vary on this sort of thing.
0: Now, next, we get a really interesting sequence in the movie, which is we have Murphy's death. But from here, we start seeing something from some point of view through a kind of grainy, uh, almost computer or CRT image. Uh, We see these views of scientists messing with somebody from their point of view, like drilling around on their head and adjusting his vision. So we're seeing RoboCop's point of view, and this is the project run by Bob Morton. Uh, uh, Rob, do you, you, anything you want to identify about these scenes where we're like watching Murphy's physical remains become become able to see as they're becoming RoboCop?
1: I mean, it's almost like
0: he's being,
1: he is being born again, you know? It's like yeah. early memories, childhood memories almost, that sort of sense as he's watching the scientists work on him, as he's eventually seeing, uh, you know, there's like a, a, an office party, a Christmas party or something that's underway, yeah. and, uh, and they're interacting with him a little bit. But also there are bits of dialogue, though, on the other hand, that far from discussing him as a child, I think Morton in particular is like, He's dead now. We can do whatever we want with him. Like, he's no longer yeah. a human. He is a product. Yeah.
0: He, he, product. he signed the rights to his remains away. That was part of his contract to be a cop. Uh, and we can do whatever we want with them. It's not him anymore. Yeah. Also in these scenes, uh, we learn about RoboCop's three prime directives. They say, you know, he's guided by the directives to serve the public trust, protect the innocent and uphold the law. And then there is a fourth directive that is not spelled out. It just says it's classified, but it does flash on the screen. They say nothing about that out loud. It's just something that RoboCop sees on his own heads up display.
1: Yeah, this will become important later
0: on. So after this, uh, RoboCop is unveiled. They put him out on the beat. And there are just a bunch of scenes of RoboCop out on patrol, intervening when crimes are in progress. We see him stop an armed robbery at a convenience store. He intervenes when two men are attacking a woman in an abandoned lot. He resolves a hostage situation at City Hall. And in all of these scenes, RoboCop is shown to be in some ways highly effective, in other ways not. Like he is successful at stopping the crimes, but he does so via the application of brutal violence in every case, and he is shown to be cold and mechanical in his relations to victims.
1: Yeah, it, we, we see the media segments of him being celebrated, but also, yeah, at the same time, he's not really doing the ideal version of police work here. He's just like a blunt instrument that reaches through walls to grab um, uh, criminals and so forth.
0: There's one part where I think they're asking, like, uh, there's, like, school children clearly being terrified by RoboCop during some kind of outreach program. And they're like, do you have any message for the children? And he says, stay out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but all of this builds up to a uh, a realization. Lewis, Murphy's old partner, sees through the machine mask. She sees that it's Murphy underneath, noticing little ticks, little uh, sayings and movements that mirror things Murphy did. One giveaway is that Murphy was practicing this kind of, you know, a cowboy gun holster move that was from a TV show that his son liked called TJ Laser. And then she Mm -hmm. sees RoboCop do the same move. So she realizes who it is. She's like, that's Murphy in there. And she goes up to him at one point. She like approaches him in a hallway and says, Murphy, it's you. And this causes a crisis. RoboCop is not supposed to have a personality or any memories. Bob Morton, again, he explains that, like, it's just physical scaffolding. They just need some brain tissue. Murphy no longer exists. It's just brain tissue owned by OCP. That's not a person. It's a machine. But nevertheless, RoboCop begins to malfunction by having memories and dreams and glitches. And this leads up to a scene where he visits his former home that he shared with his family, which is now empty and, and for sale. There's like a robotic uh, salesman who, you know, starts talking when he comes in the door like, oh, this could be your new dream home. And I think some critics at the time might have sneered at these sequences of him, you know, this machine with these strange robotic motions trying to reclaim his, his past life and remember what it was. They might have seen that as ridiculous, but I found this stuff quite moving. To each their own, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. This this is one of the segments that really hit me in the feels. I I, I liked it. I thought I, I thought it worked.
0: Also, somewhere in here, there's a scene where uh, Dick Jones sends Clarence Boddicker, who works for him, by the way, to Bob Morton's house to 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 kill him. He's just like, okay, I'm done with Morton.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like Morton really didn't know what he was messing with. I he, he clearly didn't really think that Dick Jones would send. a a goon to his house to murder him in cold blood. And that's exactly what happens.
0: Then there's an interesting middle section of the movie in which RoboCop, in in this process of rediscovering that he might have been a person at one point and who that person was, he starts to systematically solve Murphy's own murder. So he, like, encounters Emil, one of... Clarence Boddicker's gang uh, in the middle of like robbing a, a gas station and he encounters him and from him he traces him to other members of Boddicker's gang and eventually to Boddicker himself and when he when he captures Boddicker Boddicker claims that he can't be arrested because he has a protection agreement he works for Dick Jones and Dick Jones runs the police.
1: Yeah, this whole um, Solving his own murder uh, series of sequences is great. Uh, like, there's the scene where he goes to the nightclub to collect Ray Wise's character. Yeah. Uh, that one's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it, it, it builds nicely until he's, yeah, he's already found Boddicker. Uh, that Boddicker, this is where there's a, uh, he roughs him up quite a bit uh, and drags a, a bloody, snarling Boddicker into police headquarters.
0: But, at th- uh, so now he has evidence that Dick Jones is behind it all. So he tries to go up the chain to arrest Dick Jones, and it doesn't work out so well. He walks into to, uh, the office. Ronnie Cox is sitting there, and uh-oh. Ronnie Cox like holds out his hands. He says, sounds pretty serious. You better arrest me. But RoboCop is somehow unable to act. He Something is preventing him, and here we see the activation of Directive 4, his secret guiding principle, which is that he cannot act against the interests of OCP. So he cannot will himself to arrest one of its officers.
1: Oh, yeah. And then this is where Dick Jones, with with villainous charm, brings out Ed 209. He's like, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Uh, Boardroom doors open and out comes this glorious stop motion creation. Uh, Ed 209 is here to finish off
0: RoboCop. So, yeah, for a, for a bit, there's this fight, uh, this struggle where RoboCop is sort of immobilized. It's these two killer robots versus each other, but one of them still has a shred of humanity inside it, and it manages to barely escape ED-209. And then there is a detail in this fight that I have always loved since the first time I saw the movie. What, how is ED-209 defeated in this confrontation? by stairs ed 209 gets to the stairwell and uh robocop runs down it and ed 209 clearly this is a contingency that the designers of ed 209 had never thought of and it is unable to navigate going down a staircase and ends up uh, turned on its back and unable to to get up and uh, it's hilarious it feels so right and it's the the best possible conclusion to this fight
1: yeah, yeah. It, it hits all the right notes. And, and, in, and in a sense, like it does get into this again, sort of light sci fi about cybernetics and robotics. The idea that Ed 209 is a military application that is clearly clearly was not designed for police work. It was not designed to interact in a human world. And an important part of police work is interacting in a human world. That involves obviously things like stairs, as well as other nuances, like being able to tell the difference between a um, a, a perpetrator who is uh, an active threat and someone who has already surrendered and so forth.
0: Yeah. And so I think that I think part of the vision of Ed 209 is that it is a very dangerous, lethal robot, but it, in many ways it is poorly designed. Mm-hmm. So it's like it, it is designed to appeal to the people who award defense contracts more than to, like, actually be good at its job.
1: Right. But again, great, great finish to this initial uh, combat between RoboCop and ED-209
0: but at this point so Robocop is he's able to get down the stairs but at this point the OCP controlled police force arrives and they have been ordered to destroy Robocop and so they try but Lewis saves him she comes to the rescue she takes him off to the abandoned foundry we saw earlier and helps him rediscover who he is in this sequence his mask comes off like he uh, removes the bolts and takes off his visor and reveals that Murphy's face is still underneath there Uh, to some extent his brain Still is Murphy's brain, though it's different. And there, uh, I don't know. There's like a really tender scene where she helps him recalibrate his aim, and just kind of gives him encouragement. He doesn't know what he is, but whatever he is, she's there to help.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, this I really liked this part. And also, the the part where after the mask has come off and he has to be left alone. Um, you know, it's 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 a tender moment that is that's well acted by by both actors involved here. And you know, I, I totally totally buy into it. And It made me tear up just a little bit.
0: Meanwhile, Dick Jones hooks Boddicker's gang up with some kind of military-grade weapons that they're going to need to destroy RoboCop. Jones, of course, wants RoboCop dead for two reasons. First of all, RoboCop has evidence against Jones in his memory banks, and he doesn't want to be implicated. But the second thing is, of course, if RoboCop is eliminated, that'll put ED-209, that project, back front and center.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's promising to have an Ed 209 like on every street corner. So there are already a lot of these in storage just ready to roll out into the city in force.
0: So Boddicker and the gang now armed with these with this heavy artillery, they come to hunt down Robocop at the foundry. But, there, it, and this uh, leads to a bunch of great action scenes. There's like a car chase and there are these uh, shootouts and all that. Together, RoboCop and Lewis manage to defeat Boddicker and his gang. This is the sequence that includes Emil getting doused with toxic waste and eventually melting. Uh, oh. So it's incredibly gory action scenes. I, I We've said that a million times now, but like, you know, be warned, this is an incredibly bloody violent movie. But as action scenes, they work pretty great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen my share of Gorefest and I've seen this film before, obviously. But yeah, when I was rewatching the Emile melting sequence, it's just like like I had a, a just like a, a, a grimace fixed into my face for like a good solid five minutes yeah. because it's so grim and it's so gross and it seems to go on forever (laughs) until uh, he's finally hit by a car uh, by a Boddicker's car and just explodes in a splash of slime. It's awful.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So after all this, RoboCop goes to arrest Dick Jones because, Dick, you know, OCP is behind it all working on Dick Jones's orders. So RoboCop comes into a board meeting and he turns the old man against him by playing a tape of Dick Jones admitting the murder of Bob Morton. Now, you know, OCP may not be very sensitive to uh to the harm they cause to regular people but this is the murder of one of these corporate guys themselves and i think they're unsettled by that so uh so now dick jones actually feels afraid he tries to take the old man hostage to flee the scene and here there's an interesting conflict because robocop is still bound by directive four so he cannot act against ocp he can't act against jones but and then he he essentially hints to the old man what the, the the problem is and the old man then announces that Jones is fired from his position so robocop immediately shoots him out of the skyscraper window um, so that's an interesting twist and then there is a special effect well the special effects generally in this movie are fantastic there is a famously bad one as jones falls out of the window and it looks <laughs> like he has really long arms for some reason
1: Yeah, this is a stop-motion effect. They use a a stop-motion model of Dick Jones, uh, which, I mean, basically, uh, I guess you have to think about about stop-motion a lot with this film. Like, stop-motion is here and used in this film. Not so much because it is loving and 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 well crafted and is like an art form all its own. It was the best way of delivering this particular effect at the time. Mm. And so with Dick, even with Dick Jones falling out the window, like what are your choices? You either don't show it, or you use like a Dick Jones lying on it on a on a blue mat and do like a green screen kind of a thing where he's like mm. ah, you know, like uh, Mortal Kombat two falling into the pit, um, which can also look pretty bad or you go for stop motion. And in this case, it didn't quite work. Like you were, you were trying to create something that was too lifelike. But I wouldn't change it. Yeah, I wouldn't change it. Still admire it.
0: I love the long arms that it, it gives me a, a tickle every time. Mm-hmm.
1: This was a time period, too, where like that sort of shot, I feel like, happened a lot. You had a lot of bad guys falling to their death. Like, didn't the Joker go down the same way?
0: Oh, With maybe, maybe.
1: maybe a maybe. slightly
0: more convincing effect. Ah, I don't recall. Yeah.
1: Falling off skyscrapers. They all do it.
0: Well, anyway, so uh, after this, the the old man says, uh, I think he says something like, nice shooting, son. What's your name? And Robocop does not say Robocop. He says Murphy. Uh, and that's the end of the film. And it's an interesting ending because Murphy has somewhat reclaimed his humanity. Like, he has acted against the direct interests of his one of his bosses in this case so he has somewhat done the right thing despite what he's being told to do by the by the organization that controls him he has to some degree recovered part of himself in that like he uh, you know he remembers his family he remembers his life even though he's not fully the murphy he was he realizes some part of him is Murphy, but he's still not completely free. And I think that makes the ending more interesting and bittersweet than if he just had like a a total victory over the bad guys. He's still not fully free because he's not able to remove directive four. He just has to like outsmart it, find a way around it by getting the old man to fire Dick Jones so he can act.
1: But again, thinking of Dick Jones as kind of a God or Zeus figure, it's like he has he has scaled to the top of Mount Olympus once more. Uh, and, and I guess we also have a satanic figure literally falling uh, from, the, from the heights here. But, but then the, the old man has to acknowledge him. And in asking yeah. him his name, there is kind of like a power there. It's like, like this is your chance to reclaim some portion of your humanity that we took from you. And he does reclaim at least part of it.
0: Yeah, but like we said, it's not a complete victory. It's not, you know, it's not like OCP is completely defeated and and the world has changed for the better. I mean, it's a small, limited victory, but at least it is that in this otherwise bleak and horrible world.
1: Yeah, they, I mean, there's so many great little moments, uh, like the, the final showdown with Boddicker, of course, where he stabs him in the neck, which apparently they wanted to do something grislier. And this was the, the this was the, the, the less grisly version, you know, and I guess you don't actually see him stab him in the neck. That's true. Uh, you just see like way too much blood splash under RoboCop's chest. And then you see Boddicker stumbling away with blood gushing out of his neck. Still incredibly violent. Uh, but I'd forgotten that you don't actually see uh, it going into his neck.
0: The the spike that he uses to kill Boddicker there is not actually meant to be a weapon. It is the what? jack that he uses to interface with the police computer.
1: Yeah. And when he busts it out again to load the incriminating evidence, it's still bloody with Boddicker's blood. But but, but shortly after that, there was that scene where um, Lewis is all, is shot up. And, uh, you know, they've, they've defeated the bad guys there. Uh, this is at the industrial site. And Robocop says to her, "It's like, "Don't worry, they'll fix you up. They always do, or something to those effects. Uh, which
0: they fix everything. I think
1: they fix says. everything, which which ties into this feeling of, yeah, the sort of the the partial victory, like the, the 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 powers that be are still very much in charge and are very much the deciders of life and death and resurrection. Um, but some monicum of, of victory, some some shred of humanity has been reclaimed.
0: So that's Robocop. Would you buy that for a dollar?
1: Yes, I would. <laughs> I would. I would buy it for 30 plus dollars, uh, whatever the going rate for the the Blu-ray is, um, you know, or, you know, rent it digitally or physically for somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five dollars. Well worth it. Well worth the time.
0: Okay, that's all I've got.
1: All right, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode. I think we have one more episode before our Christmas selection. So, uh, you know, keep your eyes open to see what we're going to be covering. You can follow the films that we cover on Weird House Cinema by going to letterboxd.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Our username there is Weird House, and we have a nice list of all the movies we've covered so far, and sometimes uh, a sneak peek at what's coming up at least in the week to follow, uh, we're primarily a science podcast here. at stuff to blow your mind. With core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but on on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film. Film here on Weird House Cinema. Follow us on social media if you use social media. On Instagram, we are STBYM Podcast, and uh, I have to say the the social media team has been putting up some some cool like trailer uh, audio visual trailer samples of the films covered on Weird House. So that's another place where you can get a little Little taste of the movie we're talking about each week.
0: Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer, JJ posway If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to com Stuff to blow your mind is a production
2: of iHeartRadio.
0: What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at
1: Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit
2: Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild